You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. My guest today, I'm excited for because I'm a big fan of the band he's in. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they're great. I've been listening to them since I was in college. And the other thing I love is his sideburns are always on point. I've had sideburns throughout the years. I'm blind in one eye, so I screw up the cutting, and one that goes higher and lower. But his are always just perfect. And my guest from The Pretenders is Martin Chambers. How you doing, Martin? I'm uh, pretty good, Steve. How are you? Hello, everyone. I got to ask you, so so the sideburns, I just, it, it fascinates me. They've always looked so good. Have you always been a sideburn guy? Uh, yeah, I think it was, um, I'm from a farming community, which is in the west of England and on the Welsh borders, and I think uh, from a young age, all the farmers had sideburns, and I think I was just trying to be grown up, but I was sent home from school once for growing a moustache, but as soon as I got it down, I've, I've had a beard or sideburns ever since I was able to grow it. How do you how do you keep them even? I see some of the old pictures of you, and they come and they're pointy and they're just perfect. How do you do that? Because I want to know how to do it. Because I'm tired of chopping mine half off. Well, I think it's it's a bit of work. You've just got to the best way to make them look real sharp. So if I'm doing any TV or anything like that, is let it grow for a day or probably two, and then chop it in fresh. All right. So now you said you grew up in a farming community. Um, what got you into playing drums? Uh, my father and mother. Mother played piano a little, um, and she was on the stage with Dora Bryan, a famous British actress, in the Blackpool Babes when she grew up in Manchester. I'm half Hereford, half Manchester. And then my father was playing in a in a band. He played trumpet and flugelhorn in a band all his life. So. There was always music around. It's the usual thing. And then you pick up on radio when I was listening to music. Uh, the radio was becoming quite popular. Late 50s, 56 onwards, I guess. And then rock and roll hit then. So I had access to it, which a lot of people before that time with jazz didn't really have great uh, access like we've had since the end of the 50s, you know. Now, how did you choose the drums? Was it a certain calling? Did you see did you see a certain drummer that you liked, or did you hear a certain drum solo you said, I want to do that? How did you pull to drums? I never saw a drum solo and thought, that's what I'd like to do. I mean, the truth of the matter is I lied. Uh, I was in the market house in Rossomway one evening when I was about 15, 14, 15, overheard the local musicians in the corner talking about wanting to start a new band, and they, they were saying, oh, we, we need to find a drummer. And I said, I can play the drums. So <laughs> it was a lie. I'd never touched a drum kit, never seen a drum kit, apart from through a, a you know, the con condensation on the window, looking into a club in Ross, where I saw my first bands playing in, in the late 60s, I guess. So this was when I was 15. So that would be about 1966, 67. So... I always wanted... Always wanted to play guitar, you know, like all the kids did. So you 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 told these guys you played the drums. Did they hire you? And then if they did, did you have to scramble to learn how to play them? I mean, it's just something you can't learn overnight. Drums are very hard. Well, it's a bit more basic than that. I mean, where are the drums? I didn't have any drums. Uh, the only person I knew with drums was the local. Uh, Guy Buffin, who uh, was Terry Scriffin, and he played, or was to play some years later, at a band called Mop the Hoople. 
Um, he was in um, the uh, what was it? Thomas Doc Thomas Group, I think, or whatever early band he was in. But he had a drum kit, um, a really good drum kit. And uh, so basically, there was a two snare drums, a bass drum, and a hi hat. Is all I had for when we started rehearsing, and that was owned by a friend of a, of uh, the singer's cousin. And so I kind of put some uh, felt under the snare on one of them and used that as a tom tom. Um, didn't have a floor tom, just a bass drum, and played hi hats and uh, snare mounted tom and bass drum for two weeks, and we did our first gig. I never found it a problem. I thought everybody could do it. <laughs> well, that's good. You've done it very well. I I tried to play. My brother played the drums, and when I played, I just I couldn't. I wasn't. I don't know. I guess I wasn't coordinated enough because people don't know it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's something that I guess if it comes naturally and it came natural to you, it's a lot e- a little easier. Yeah, I think what it was. I listened to the radiogram, which we had in the lounge. I sat on a on the left hand side of the sofa, on the arm of the sofa, put some pillows down to my right. I played along on the arm of the chair, much to the annoyance of my mother, but uh, uh, with knitting needles. So I kind of had rhythm there. Rhythm was, wasn't difficult. I never remember ever trying to play boom, da, boom, da, boom, you know. It was never a problem. I just played it. So uh, with that in mind, I, the transference to a, a couple of snare drums and a bass drum and a hi-hat wasn't a problem at all. Um, and then on my first gig... Uh, our PA blew up, and Pete over in Watts and uh, Buffin, both of which are now deceased, unfortunately, those guys uh, had their J4 Thames van outside when we played St. Mary's Church Hall. This would have been in the summer of love, 67, and they brought in a PA, a Selma PA, plugged it in, uh, and I, I was already sitting on Buffin's drum kit. He lent me his drum kit for the first gig I ever played. It was like... I was like a kid in a toy shop that night. Now you get the you, you get you start playing. You're playing in this band. How how did the Pretenders come about? What was what was the starting of Pretenders? I read somewhere that you were you were driving a car for a car service and you went to the guy's house. Or how did how did how did that all happen? Well, it's very simple. I never wanted to be a driving instructor, but once I'd lived in a van for two years in London, getting nowhere at all. I'd been in various lineups and bands. And I thought, I've got to do some networking now. Uh, and I've been getting a bit fed up of starving in the back of a van near the Nashville rooms in West Kensington. So I thought, well, go along to the labor exchange and, uh, and find a job that comes with a car. If I had a car, at least on the weekends, I could get back to Hereford, I could get around London. Uh, and I got a job with the British School of Motoring and did a, a two, three week course in Sydney Street in London and got a car with a job and it was because of that and that's the reason I did it I didn't do it to become a bloody driving instructor (laughs) as so many biographies have said that's just nonsense it was about me getting around to find out what was shaking so you get it and then from there how do you end up joining the pretenders because I had the car I went back to Harryford one weekend uh went to the local watering hole and met a guy called Andy Watt. Andy Watt was a cameraman who later did some work with the Pretenders on the road. But Andy said, oh, uh, Jimmy and Pete have been looking for you. They're, they're living in my flat in Tufnell Park. 
and um, they're working with this girl that knows Johnny Rotten. So I thought, well, that's something. So I took his address, and it, funnily enough, of the whole of London, they were living about four or 500 yards away, the other side of the Camden Road. So I went over to see them, uh, gave them my address, left my address with them, they were rehearsing, and then I think it was the, it was within a day or two then that I met Jim and Pete and stuff, and they talked about uh, Jerry Mapleduff, who they were working with, not being committed to getting into a band. This is before Pretenders started. This is, um, they recorded Stop Your Sobbing with Nick Lowe and The Wait as a B-side, but there was no name yet. This would have been summer 78. So they said, there's no commitment from Jerry. Do you want to join the band? Uh, to which I said yes. And then um, we started rehearsals. And then I think it was just before Christmas, maybe the end of November, they, they were releasing the single in January and the record company wanted a name for the band. So I met them because I found them. still there yeah yeah so i found them because i had the car that was the whole idea of, the, of the getting the jo a job is getting a job with a car so then we started rehearsing and it's it happened pretty quickly then so how did you come up with it how did the name pretenders come to fruition well uh jimmy and i got in the taxi the taxi went around not far away to pick up uh, chrissy and pete and we were going to Warner Brothers to give them a name. And we had some ridiculous names, but Chrissy and Pete were in the taxi and they were talking together about various names. And one of them was the Pretenders or Pretenders. And I said, that sounds like an established name. I like it, Pretenders, you know? And so we kind of had a quick chat in the taxi, got to Broadwick Street where Warner Brothers was and or WEA, I think it was at the time, and then um, that was it, Pretenders, and they stabbed the labels for the single Stop Your Sobbing, um, and that came out in January 79. So when that came out, did then did they then put you on the road? Did they have you playing gigs to get more exposure? How did it work? Yeah. Yes, we, we were, once we'd rehearsed up all the songs we got, Chrissy had a few ideas for a few extras, um, like Question Mark and the Mysterians and those sort of acts that had songs. Uh, she liked that from her neck of the woods in Ohio. So we added a couple of tracks for our live set. And also Jimmy liked uh, Sabre Dance that was recorded at Rockfield Studios just down the road from where I live in Monmouthshire, which was the first uh, I recorded there in 71. And there's an interesting uh, appendix to this story. Um, we recorded an album there with a trio I was, I was in called Karakoram. And um, so that was, the, that was the local big place, the first residential studio in the world run by Kingsley Ward. And those recordings are now coming out on record. So we, I've just signed a contract for, for those recordings recorded 50 years ago. So they're coming out, uh, I think, within the year. So basically, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's amazing how these things happen, but you, you, you make happen what you wish to happen. So the album, when the album comes out, how do you, first of all, how do you go from getting on the road and you did that trio to actually getting to where you can record a full album? Well, we started doing gigs 
because that's what we wanted to do. Chrissy had a very, uh, it was tough for Chrissy because she had a band suddenly that could play her stuff like you wouldn't believe. We rehearsed quite a lot in London. We went out on the road, did a couple, well, we did a couple of gigs to start off, one of which Seymour Stein came to see us. Uh, the old Clute Clique, which was a railway hotel in Hampstead, and that was our first gig. Uh, Seymour Stein came to see us from New York, signed us to a deal uh, through New York for Sire Records on Real Records in England, and um, yeah, I'm still friends with Seymour today. So he did, he was on an airplane most of the time in those days. So basically, we did the odd gig, and then we started touring properly, but we also started going into the studio shortly after that. And Chrissy had done some backing vocals with Steve, with um, Spedding, uh, Chris Spedding, who had a hit with Motorbiking. She'd done some backing vocal stuff. She tried other bands and getting into this, which didn't last more than a week or so. But she knew Chris Thomas, who recorded that album for Spedding, and Chris Thomas was top man. So she got Chris interested uh, in doing our first album. So we ended up touring and recording, touring or recording through 79. So that, uh, yeah, Kid came out next, we recorded that, and then Blasted Pocket, and the album came out, so I think in the last week of 1979, it was the first number one album and single, actually, with Blasted Pocket here in the UK. And then from there, uh, after we finished, concluded uh, tours, to about February, we went to America and started the first time in March 1980, touring America. What was the difference touring where you're from and then coming to America? What, I mean, did you see, was, were the, are the crowds different or as a musician, what did you, what did you uh, notice? I noticed the power of Warner Brothers because they had put a video together introducing Mac and Chambers, you know, Chrissy and Pete and that, like an introductory film, which they put in their theaters, their movie theaters around the planet. So it was like a little teaser with a little bit of our music thrown in, uh, of us playing it. Um, and that went out as uh, an introduction all over the world. And so by the time we got to America, which is the dream of any British musician, to get to America and work America. Uh, by the time we got there, people were pretty excited already about seeing us. And on, on that first tour, it flew by. I think we did three tours of America that year. We were in America for sort of five, six months touring. How exciting is it? You know, you said it's your, it's, it's you know, it's the, every goal of the UK artist to get over to America. You're a young guy. You're touring. People know you. MTV, you know, your videos are popular. What is it like from your eyes at that young age, just seeing your career just folding out? Well, initially you're extremely pleased. Uh, generally you're pleased because you're, I'm getting paid 50 pounds a week at this point for going on the road and doing what I love every night with my mates from Hereford. Jimmy and Pete were my friends from Hereford. I've known Jimmy since he wore short trousers. So they were my long buddies, you know, and I, I was in a band with them touring America. Um, the thing about it is, you see the best bits of it, but of course we all got completely knackered, and um, you know, Chrissy was thrown in jail, I think, nine gigs into the tour, and you know, things were happening, but 
we were just tearing it up a bit like bands do but um yeah that only lasted so long and then we uh, we had to take a bit of a break because i smashed my hand in a in a hotel suite How, how'd you do that what, what happened i gotta hear this because you're a drummer that's like that's like that's like a boxer breaking his hand we had to tell the story that I tried to open the window and uh, it had been painted closed. And you know, I like to open the window, whether it's with a chair or the conventional way. And uh, I did that many times. But the point was, that was the story that cut the back of my right hand and uh, almost severed uh, um, that little white thing that sits in there controlling the muscles. And you know, it was just horrible but that was a hell of an evening we were staying at the legionnaires hotel where the guy got died from legionnaires disease uh the bellevue stratford i think it was called in philadelphia at the time very plush it was a funny night a lot went on that night but um i, I, I unfortunately my wife was on the road and she was um I, she just didn't stop so i just stopped it by smashing this huge ceramic lampstand next to my bed I just put my fist through it unfortunately it, uh, it it made rather a large scar and that was the end of that tour and sorry Canada because we were supposed to be touring some places in Canada too <laughs> and you know it was just we had we didn't notice it but we were we were pretty damn tired you know we'd been hitting it pretty hard for over a year and touring and recording and a TV and all the rest of it. So the usual happened. Um, something burst, and it wasn't Chrissy, Jimmy, or Pete, uh, but it was me. Now, what goes through your mind when you, when you, that moment where you cut your hand, and you must be like, "Oh crap, that's that's my hand." I mean, were you? worried right away? Were you pissed right away? Because I, I don't know what kind of feelings I would feel because. Once again, it's like a boxer getting hurt. You're a drummer. Your hands are very important. Well, I immediately walked down with my wife and wrapped up my hand. It was really bleeding. I mean, it was dripping, uh, even with uh, the towel wrapped around it. And we walked down, went to the elevator, down into reception, where they called immediately for an ambulance or something, and a police car picked me up. I wasn't even wearing my sneakers. I got to the police car and tried to put my sneakers on in the back of the police car. And unfortunately, my left foot wouldn't go into my sneakers for some reason because I was a lump of something, a bag of something in the, in the toe of my left sneaker, which was a big bag of pot. So um, I just kind of struggled along with that. They sewed me up with all these stitches and cleaned it off and put me in a bit of a cast and stuff, and I couldn't move. Fortunately, the first finger on my right hand and thumb were okay so I could hold a stick between that but we didn't play for the best part of three weeks and then there's another story about me cutting my hand, the same hand in, um, no the left hand in Dublin when we played in Dublin to carry on with the touring business and I mean it was just a mess, we were we were lucky to get through all of that to be quite honest um, yeah funny times you can look back at it now it wasn't funny at the time but you know Chrissy and everybody you know noticed then that if Martin's done that something like that then we are we need a break so I think at that point we um, I can't remember whether I think we were on the point of getting the second album out and uh, so Warner's made a mistake of releasing an extended play rather than the second album but nevertheless it was that time where you've got to you know, you've got to just take some 
a bit of a bit of air and get get some home time and um, and get things straight again and then come back and tour with a new album. Well, you know, I'm surprised that you know when you got hurt and you said you had some tour uh, dates in Canada. I'm surprised that the record company didn't want, I know the band didn't want you to replace you, but I'm surprised the record company didn't say, hey, you know what, you got to play these dates. I mean, it seems that seems like record companies do that stuff a lot. Well, yeah, the thing was, there's an interview on MTV where Peter and I do an interview, and Pete, God bless him, says, you know, well, they can replace me, but they can replace Martin. And I think it's that thing that goes on musically between... Chris's right arm, the rhythm she pumps out from her right arm playing her guitar, and the way I play with that, because I don't play with a bass player, I'm not a rhythm section kind of guy, I'm more a song player, so I've been told, and I think that was the point, if you've got another drummer, it just doesn't sound right, as you can tell from, you know, recent things, I mean, we wasn't on a lot of records recently, because I just didn't want to go through the hassle of recording with Chrissy, it was just a pain in the ass, but... We eventually got one done, uh, what is it, getting on for two years ago now. We put down an album with Stephen Street producing at Rack Studios in London. It was a joy to do. The rehearsals were a pain in the ass, as usual, uh, because Chrissy never understands what I'm doing, trying to get my muscle memories and all my bits together ready to record. But nevertheless, uh, without any proper rehearsal for me, apart from learning the arrangements that get changed in the studio anyway, I finished that album in barely four days. Now, as the band's getting bigger, first of all, do you remember the first time you heard a Pretender song on the radio? Because everyone always, it's always fascinating that people, most people remember exactly what had happened. Some people don't. But do you remember the first time you heard a, you playing drums on the radio on a Pretender song? Not really, because I think when that happened with Sobbing, A, it wasn't me playing the drums, it was Jerry McElduff, because it was the single being played. Um, and then Kid came out, and it was, from then on, it was just, uh, yeah, there, there we are. So, and also, we were so busy, you know. Um, then, then you come to America, where there's a thousand FM channels, and there's all sorts of stuff going on, and you heard it. I, I think it was just the fact we were extremely busy. Um, when we weren't busy, we were still busy. Now, as a band, the first album does good. People really like it. It's a great album. Did you, as a band, do you guys feel the pressure to come out with a second album that's better? I mean, what goes through the minds when you're creating, knowing that, you know, you, of course you want to do better, but what went through your guys' minds? I mean, how did you start getting ready for the second album? Well, it was difficult because we've been working so hard anyway and of course Chrissy being the main songwriter and she'd become a great uh, songwriter writing team with Jimmy and uh, and it was the pressure of coming up with you know you have your whole life to record the, you know to write the first album and you've got like six months to do the second one it's the usual thing the industry calls it the difficult second album uh, and that's usually the reason you know and um, we had climbed a pretty big mountain, especially Chrissy, you know, because she always had to look at the fretboard as she was singing. She was fronting a band, so it was a, a very steep learning curve for Chrissy, and she had a lot of pressure on her, and, and Jimmy and her put things together. We, again, a lot of rehearsing once they got the basic ideas. Um, a lot of rehearsing with just Pete, Jimmy, and me as well, um, just to work the flow of the, of the song we're trying to get together so it sounded already established and good and solid and 
so an awful lot of work but uh yeah it's just that difficult second album you have to do it so you get it done and you're a bit straight back on the road again now you're on the road again and your band's getting more popular what what's the difference as you start moving up the bill? I'm sure your first tour you may have been opening for bigger acts. What was your what was the, the your touring to get to rise a level? What were the stages of your different tours? Well, we were used to headlining because we played the clubs. I mean, the record company paid for big support. We had our lighting truck, we had uh, all our equipment in a truck, we had a, a bus the crew we had a bus for us that cost a lot of money and we didn't make any money for the first year or two so basically that came out of our uh, that was recouped by the record company from the money earned from the albums being sold and that was the only money i got so i was never on publishing so i didn't really get any money for 18 months or more um so that was very difficult everybody was living in houses but i was staying in a rented flat and uh so that was a difficult period, that transition to where we're actually making money on the road. And um, so I could have a life as well. But, you know, I'm on the road all the time. It's it's incredible feeling, really. It's, um, life is very unreal, especially in those early days, you know. Although I've been playing drums in front of people since 67, I had 11 years of it before the pretenders happened. So. I was pretty used to traveling and doing the gigs and all that sort of stuff. And this was luxury now because we had a crew to set stuff up and, you know, so it was, it was, it was getting more comfortable. I just wanted to uh, see if there was any money coming my way at any point in the future. And nothing's really changed there. We had one good year in 84, but of course, Jim and Pete were dead by then and I earned some money from that, but that was the last time I did. But I don't think Chrissy liked that very much. Now, you know, James passed away. Um, how how does a band? I mean, you're very close with both of those gentlemen who passed. How did you rebound after after James passed away? I mean, did you guys ever think that you know what we're not going to be able to replace him? I mean, what what goes through the mind of a band when it's an integral part of the group that has left? Well, we had a bit of time because Chrissy had fallen pregnant and she told Jimmy and I and we, just before he died and um, Jimmy had come back from uh, America after we were on a break and he called me up said I'm coming in on Sunday he just played a couple of gigs with the Beach Boys his favourite band he was on top of the world he flew in uh, we had Sunday lunch at my place and then we went to see Chrissy where we talked about this was by now the time where we were having trouble with Pete and um, so we decided then to sack Pete because Jimmy said, I, if, if Pete's still in the band, I'm not, I'm leaving. So to keep the songwriting team together of Chrissy and Jimmy, uh, we had to sack Pete. Um, and then the day after we sacked Pete, officially, Jimmy died. And the way it felt to me was when he was my best friend. And so it was, you know, and I found him dead in a, in a flat in London. And um, with the manager, we went over when we got the call. The police had just arrived and I went over to the room and I, I sat down beside him. And, um, yeah, it, it was very difficult and affected my life in a huge way. And, of course, uh, barely 10 months later, Pete was dead too. So, you know, it was the Harryford 3 was now the Harryford 1 against the American one. And um, so when Chrissy wanted to get rid of me too, she just did that. It took her three years, but 
you know, it's just very, very difficult. I was suffering and suffered for many, many, many decades. So the way the way I did it for me was just gently get used to the fact they weren't there uh, and try and find another band. And I tried several different things in London and L.A. and nothing really ever happened. It was just hard, bloody work. And then, of course, it was only a couple of years later that Chrissy called me and said, uh, I want you back in the band. Was it easy getting back in the band? I mean, was it easy when you when you started playing because you know it was as you said the American against you, and and you know your your friends were no longer with the band. Was it hard to sit down and play with other people? Not really. On the plus side, Jimmy knew um, Robbie McIntosh and wanted Robbie to be the second guitar player in the Pretenders. If Jimmy had lived and things had continued because Jimmy layered a lot of different guitar parts on the tracks Jimmy wanted to be let loose a bit more um, and have the second guitar player playing all of the basic parts and him playing all the stuff on top uh, so when Jimmy was gone uh, we auditioned loads of guitar players of course uh, and um, the best one was Robbie by far he had a friend who played bass who was good enough and you know and that's really the the in again for us to put the band back together so once we got Robbie and, uh, and Malcolm and then a friend of theirs stepped in on keyboards that we introduced at that point so it was a lot of rehearsing at that point Chrissy was having her baby so it was a couple of months of me leading everybody through all the songs and getting them to play the correct things Robbie was great but uh, the bass player would play high up play like a something that was not relevant to a rock band called the pretenders so I, I i always told him don't go don't go past the fifth fret you stay down the bottom you don't do it he says i'd say if i hear that i'm gonna fucking punch you in the face <laughs> so <laughs> Morgan Foster, anyway uh got that band together chrissy came in at the end of that having had her first uh child and uh, she got up to speed pretty quickly and then Chain Gang came out because we were also in the studio finishing the album uh, which would use Billy Bremner and stuff like that so that was learning to crawl and that took us uh, that was 83 leading towards 84 and I think in 83 we did five gigs around America and ended up do, doing the US Festival which was our introduction back to America with a new band and um and then when the album came out, we toured with Learning to Crawl, which was uh, right through to most of 84, a uh, few bits and pieces, and then Live Aid. And that was the last time I played with Chrissy till 93. But coming back, when Chrissy made the phone call, uh, it was pretty cool, actually, because Stephen Street, who I liked a lot as a producer, who did our latest album, um, Hate for Sale, uh, Stephen was producing an album with Chrissy um, in London and so I went up and that's where I started playing straight away I just listened to the songs and played um, Adam Seymour was the guitar player then and Andy Rourke on bass who was from the Smiths good players so I found it you know it's like falling off a bike and I played that album finished the album with them and that came out and we were on the road yes I thought it was uh, comparatively easy because it was Chrissy and me again, and as soon as Chrissy plays, it's obvious what I gotta do. But uh, of course, in the background, there was the other side of it. What was it really like for me? It was the worst decade of my life, the 90s. I got lost. 
I was living in LA before before I came back to uh, to England and got the call from Chrissy and got sorted out. I was working with Dave Stewart and the Spiritual Cowboys eventually, and luckily it was Chris Thomas uh, that was called in to do this and that with Dave. Um, Production-wise, he was in the middle of in excess recordings in Sydney. He flew over to LA from Sydney. He called me saying they were going to be in the studio up in Encino, and um, I popped over one day, and suddenly I was in the Dave Stewart Spiritual Cowboys, and we did that for two years, and then that took me from '91 to '93, which is when I got the call from Chrissy. Um, but really, what I was in LA, you know, Lost Angeles, I got hopelessly lost and like any any problem with drinking or drugs when you're lost you know you can't get anywhere until you know you're lost you can't give up any drugs or alcohol until you realize you're an alcoholic you know uh, and that's the worst thing about being lost is you don't know you're lost um but it, the 90s was terrible you know taking too many drugs too regularly never on the road um always hit for work but gradually getting into a wallow of uh, the black dog and just drugs, you know, and it was then, and it took till 2009 until I got out of that. So I was in there for, you know, 14 years or something. It was hard, very hard, and all the time adjusting to the to the loss of still of Jim and Pete and having new members on stage where I looked across the Pete and there was Malcolm and I looked across the Jimmy and there was... Uh, Robbie McIntosh, um, good players, but you know, they didn't deserve to wear a pretender t shirt. You know what I mean? It was like there was a certain resentment, which we've mentioned before, about them becoming pretenders members and wearing the gear and all the rest of it. And it just, it just felt really hard work in lots of emotional areas, and which you have to deal with. And luckily, I came through it because I moved out of London in 2009 and, um, and uh, came to the countryside to get some space and um, uh, uh, and there's no dealers living near me. Right. Now, I got to ask you, you mentioned two things. You mentioned the Us Festival and the Live Aid. And, you know, I, I lived 10 minutes from Philadelphia and I remember when Live Aid, you know, took place, but I believe you played in London. Did you play in London or Philly for Live Aid? Philly. Okay. Unfortunately, because of an association between uh, my singer... I love saying that. My singer and the singer of Simple Minds. Uh, we were asked by Bob Geldof um, if we wanted to do it. This is like January of 85. And I think nothing was done uh, until Bob said, you're not on the bill. Why aren't you on the bill? Uh, the last minute phone call, maybe in the middle of early June or something. And then suddenly we were on the bill. But because Simple Minds were playing in Philadelphia, so were we. And for me, being English, to play Wembley Stadium, the old Wembley Stadium, uh, with the Twin Towers, where England football team won the World Cup, with Jefferson scored a hat trick in 1966. That was where I wanted to play. But uh, Martin Millie Drummer. So, what was it? What was the energy like though on that day? Because you know, you know, my, it was one of those concerts that we watched it on TV. And I remember it was so freaking hot. And uh, being yeah, right yeah. over the bridge, we're like, oh, man, we wish we could have gone. In fact, my wife, you know, she told me years later, someone had called and there wasn't cell phones and someone had tickets for her and her friend, but they never found out until the night 
of when they got home from yeah. where they were. What was what was the yeah. atmosphere like? I've heard people just say it was just amazing. It was just and everyone was it there. Was, it was amazing. Yes, absolutely amazing. And that's why I wish I'd been at Wembley, but I wasn't. I was at um, what was the name of that uh, JFK Stadium that they bulldozed a decade or two ago. And you know, it was MTV. Everybody that was anybody was backstage, and um, uh, some great interviews uh, from that period on the on the back of the stage and um, watching all the bands playing but it, you know there were a lot of stories I mean rehearsals we got 17 minutes that was our slot uh, Queen I think had 22 who had 23 you know so you only had this short period and Queen had like 23 as well I mean Queen did the best job there were lots of reasons for that but they had the songs put into a, a, such great shape and compressed uh, it was magical um, and everybody was uh, was fantastic really but it was a hell of a do I tell you we rehearsed 17 minutes so we, we started rehearsals to get it together and Chrissy kept looking at me saying why, are you, why have you got a stopwatch I said I'm, record, I'm just putting it on when we do a run through I want to know how long it is we've got 17 minutes she complained all the way through the five-day rehearsal. And on the final day, we finished and started packing up. She said, how long was it? How long was it? And suddenly it became important how long it was. <laughs> because obviously we've been impressed about the fact that we had 17 minutes. It's global. You cannot be on early. You cannot go off late. So um, I said, well, it'll be all right. She said, well, how long was it then? I said, well, I didn't I didn't time it because you told me not to use the stopwatch, you <laughs> fucking idiot. Anyway, um... I didn't, I, the last day, I didn't say that, but basically I knew it was about 17 minutes, 16, 18 seconds. She said, it's too long, it's too long. I said, when we get on that stage, the tempos will pick up a bit, and I bet you it's 17 bloody minutes. You watch the tape and see how long we were on stage. 17 minutes, two seconds. <laughs> no. I'm a professional drummer. <laughs> <laughs> now, now in contrast, what was the US Festival like? Because that was that was a huge festival too. What was what was playing the US Festival like for you guys? Well, like that time when I cut my hand, it was Carmine that called us up, said if you need a drummer to step in and play Martin's bit, I'll step in. But the band were happy not to continue because we were allowed to, or whatever insurance it was. But Carmine was in. Um, was in uh, Rod Stewart's band, and there was they were coming over to play, or you know, and then they were coming from Singapore or somewhere, and then there was um, God bless him Van Halen, who were coming sort of like a hundred miles from up the road or whatever it was, and they wanted the same money. As soon as they heard that the expenses for travelling back from the other side of the world was paid to Rod Stewart, I think it was Rod Stewart. Anyway. They said, look, we won our fee, which was like a million, I think, and they wanted the expenses because they didn't want any other band to get more than them. So really, it was all a bit, it, to, to us, it all sounded a bit petty when there are starving people in Africa. And um, so that's why we did a song called... It, we played Money by the Beatles um, because of that frivolous stuff you know that corporate frivolous silly management thing so that's why we played money in the set at uh, the us festival when i walked on stage for the first time that was the first gig apart from these first big gig apart from these warm-up dates um 
uh, around uh, the South of America, we did five warm-up dates. And so when I walked on stage with all those people in the heat, and Jack Nicholson hosing, oh, Jack Nicholson was hosing people down at Live Aid. That's right. That's quite funny. Huh? And then um, we're gonna hose you down. Yeah. <laughs> So at the US Festival, it was just gusty people going right to the horizon. And the first thing I did was run up to the front of the stage and kiss the stage, because I was so happy to be back in front of everybody and, and play our, our show, you know. What's the energy you feel from such a huge crowd? Because once again, you're, you're, you're a drummer, you're a great drummer, you play hard. What is it? What do you feel as you're sending out your beat and the people are sending back their energy. Is it just like a wall? I mean, there's so many, both both concerts for so many people. Was it a, like a wall of just energy that hits you right in the face? That's exactly what it is. You put it out and they, they give it back to you. And it goes in a big circle. It's the best thing in the world. Unfortunately, today, you have a room full of mobile phones pointed at you. And nobody, or very few of the audience, I know there's a lot of fans that, agree with me that you know take a picture or two and then just put your bloody phone away for me music is to be listened to and on a live gig you can actually watch them playing what you're listening to that's the bit not having your little thing on uh, Facebook or whatever you know say I was there If yeah try and be there if you can and if you're looking at your phone and taking pictures you're not there so that energy dissipates well, it's, and that energy that makes the gig the gig dissipates to not quite what it should be. And it's incredibly frustrating. It's, you know, people just don't get it. I recently did a gig for Jim and Pete, well, it was a couple of years ago now, where I got up and played a couple of songs myself on guitar and sang the songs. And, you know, people are out there talking. I'm playing an acoustic song and there are people 10 feet away talking really loud. You know, it's like people don't really get it. A lot of people don't get it. They don't realize that it, it is an audience participation thing when people perform music in this genre of music, rock and roll. Well, it's funny because I was at a concert and two things, you know, I go to a lot of concerts. Well, I did. And um, that happened the one time I saw a lady. It was at a place in Camden called the BB&T Pavilion. I believe you guys were scheduled to play there this summer, past summer. And yeah. it pissed me off so much because this lady was sitting there and she has her iPad or whatever, and she's filming the concert. And my whole time I'm thinking, you're missing you're missing the concert because it's not the same seeing it through a little screen. And secondly, I know you're never going to listen to it again because it's just, it just, it irritates you. And I, I could, I never, you know, as a musician, must really piss you off because, you know, you see cameras and you're right. It's like, I go to concerts to enjoy it. I mean, I might take a picture. Hey, I just saw, you know, the pretenders. I'll take a picture of the stage then I don't sit there and stay on my phone at all. Yeah, and I guess through the 90s when people got their phones and up to date, um, it really hasn't been the same, but especially now after this period of time with the the COVID-19 virus, I think that the world really will not be the same. I'm getting my injection um, inoculation uh, on Thursday in two days' time because I'm an old boy now. I'm nearly 70. And the thing is, you know, I feel like a kid, but I'll get that. I'll be comparatively immune to it. And it'll be like a, a booster jab every thing. Most people have flu jabs these days in this country. I never have until 
January this year, I had a, or was it December of last year, I had a flu jab for the first time because I like my immune system to work. Exactly. Uh, healthily, you know, I'm uh, 154 pounds. I'm in great shape, the barn. And um, I'm active all the time in the middle of the countryside. So I don't really see many people. And um, I'm quite happy doing that. Uh, I've got friends I call on the phone now and again. You know, um, it's just a period, I believe, that, you know, things will not be the same. We're shifting into a very dangerous time for this planet. I see it here in my 11 years that I've lived here, the uh, deterioration of species uh, around me. Little owls are no longer here. Spotted flycatchers are no longer here. Red starts are no longer here. I love the bird community. And it's the, you know, you feel that commercial pull coming right to the heart of England. And it's uh, very sad, very sad. So I, overall, I'm, um, I'm not too optimistic about the immediate future. I do hope because we have a new album along with, uh, I know Neil Young's got Colorado and it would be nice for us to go out with Neil Young. That's what I'd like to do. But of course, every band in the world, maybe next year, will be trying to get on the road. And so it's going to be very difficult, whatever happens. No. So um, it would be nice to do some more gigs, whether it happens or not, who knows. Do you do you miss the road? I mean, because you've been on the road a lot. I mean, as, as a musician, you know, how do you... First of all, how did you make the transition when you guys had a tour and then they said, well, it's COVID? And of course, you know, no one knew how long it was going to be. I mean, I didn't think it was going to be a year. No way in hell. But as a musician, did you think, yeah. okay, well, maybe maybe we're going to get to play? I mean, how do you how have you adjusted to it? Because that's what you do, man. You're a drummer. Well, Chrissy and I spoke and have spoken a little and texted one another over the last 12 months and about about sort of nine months or eight months ago we were talking she she was saying how uh how great it was that i was out in the countryside there's nobody around me i don't see people because people are the common denominator and all the problems on the planet so the fewer people i see the better i don't like seeing faces in in towns and stuff because i look at a face and i don't know something about me i seem to be able to read that person and just think, damn, you know, I'm very fortunate living out in the countryside in these old barns, and I'm very lucky. But, you know, I just, that's what I chose. I was talking to Chrissy and said, well, I chose this because, you know, if you want to get a bit more technical, um, we are living in the sixth extinction, and the human being is one of those uh, species on that list of extinction. So that's real. That's the reality of it. Um, there are going to be a lot of species die before us, but nevertheless, we're on the list. Um, I won't go on about that anymore. My private thoughts on it, but basically, it ain't going to be the same. It isn't, and I hopefully we'll be able, we'll be able to acclimate and then adjust. Well, yep. If it's at all possible that we get back on the road again, I'm sure we will. But uh, it would be nice to mm -hmm. do something. Uh, and so people, I said, I said, well, you know, the album came out in July last year, so by the time we get on the road, it'll be over a year, we can play most of the, of the new album, because at least the audience will know the songs. Right. <laughs> now, what, uh, what are your, and this, this is probably such a hard question, because it's, you know, you've been playing for so long, what, what are your top three Pretender songs you like to play live? You personally, on the drums, and just that you really feel like you're kicking ass and you're just enjoying it yeah that, that was asked 
when I was doing an interview with Chrissy and Iggy Pop and things, I can't remember what it was, a VH1 special or something, and it's a difficult one to answer. What is great about what I do and where I came from as a drummer, I worked in a big dance band for a year, leading um, brass sections and, you know, so where you have to lead the band. You know, the drummer leads it. You watch any big band drummer, and that's the that's the centre of it all, apart from all the top line. I mean, driving it along. So I did blues music for years. I did progressive rock for years. Um, and so when we came to play in the five fours and the seven fours, you know, Chris is she didn't know it was five four or seven four, but <laughs> as a musician, I knew it was, and we had to do that. So it's a diversity of music. Uh, and that's what's enjoyable because you're not just playing one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, see you in the middle eight. It's, you know, like punk, uh, which, okay, there's some great punk songs and great, you know, that's it. But generally, in terms of tempo and musicianship, it wasn't enough for me. So when I got in with Chrissy and uh, the songs, same as Pete and Jim, it was just great because they're reggae, they're ballads, they're, you know, small, little, light weight things and heavy rock but of course as you kind of mentioned in your question it is good to get down and get heavy and bang you know doing the weight and precious and up the neck and you know these kind of songs like um, I've always wanted to play an instrumental which bands play instrumental live today what bands I would always I've always wanted to play Space Invader we haven't played that since I think we did it a couple of times live in 8081 maybe but um you know chris's part on that on that track is really good so i'd love to play space invaders again but there are so many songs uh, new and old and on this new album there's some great songs love in new york city and uh, god knows what you know just great songs to play so it's the diversity of it but there's nothing like a good old-fashioned bash you know like a rocker real good like the weight that the weight just moves along so quick you know it's just great now you came out with that album you know you said a, a year it would be a year in july what what have you seen change about the music business because you guys were there in the beginning you were there when when videos were just becoming huge now a video doesn't nearly have the budget anymore what have you noticed change about the record industry and is it promising to you or is it is it does it worry you well i would have thought you know there hasn't been any sort of leading uh, movement of music new music since punk in the 70s really uh, you know and grunge and all that it's, you know it's all that something happens when the when the world goes bad so i'm hoping to hear something new you know i don't know what it would be but something new rather than this uh, music gets turfed out now there's a lot of great music out there there's no doubt about that but it's uh, what you hear on the radios the popular radio programs and but there's a lot of imagination a lot of great young players and you know people like box these days and they just put a vocal on top of them box full of noise and if the song's good great you know there's been a lot of songs done that way that are great songs but it is down to the to the songs and when it comes to uh, a rock band or whatever performing live that's the top of the the pile you know for me um, i love reggae bands and, and jazz i mean jazz is far out so 
it's it's the variation in the music that satisfies me. You know, playing Private Life, which is a reggae song that was done by um, Grace Jones uh, with those magic guys on bass and drums, and you know, and it's just yeah, it's it's difficult to describe. But basically, the variation of the music we play is more than enough for me. And I play all sorts of music, so. And also, I've made albums for all different people. I made the last Razorlight record, um, an English band. I've made records with Dave Stewart and, you know, on this and that. And um, I'm currently writing. I've been writing for the last two years pretty much to do my own album, because why not? Everybody else can do it. So why don't I make a record? Because I play guitar and a piano a bit, and I've got like 70-odd songs. So the, the, the future is always the bit for me. Um, and I'll, I'll do a, a record, I'll finish the book and see if I can get that out somehow. But, you know, everybody's interested in the singer. They're not really interested in the, the drummer, you know. As somebody uh, told me from St. Martin's Press in New York, every musician and his dog has had a book out in the last 20 years. And uh, they didn't seem very uh, optimistic about my story. But I'll finish it and I'll send it to them and say, is there a book here? And see what they say. Well, you know, I got lots to do, and I got the time to do it now. But I'm building a great deal as well here at the bar, and running out of money because the only money I earn is on the road. So uh, the future is uncertain. Well, I hope everything works out, and it will. And it's great. It uh, I got a question. Always does. I've been in lots of tight spots, man, and I, you know, uh, what's the worst that can happen? You know, exactly. I, I've waited. Before we go, I just got to ask you, what was it like uh, getting inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, that was important for me, so I could I could do in in, in a in a emotional sense, I could make a very big wave goodbye to Jim and Pete and collect their awards uh, on their behalf. And um, and so when it came around, we'd done the opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was amazing. Everybody that was anybody was on that bill. And we were invited, and uh, we we were lucky enough to be able to play three songs. One of them was Needle and the Damage, done by Neil Young, and then two of our own, and that was great. So I thought there was something in the pipeline. And I did say to our manager, Gail Colson, at the time, I did say that, you know, I know Chris, you probably won't want to do it, but I do. And that was the reason. I wanted to do it to help wave goodbye to my friends, finally. Well, that's awesome, Martin. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I'm glad our phone system worked out. you got to watch those copper wires, and we got to watch the snow in New Jersey. But, uh, okay, thank you, Steve. Thanks very much, Steve. And um, thank you to everybody who's listened to this. It's, uh, it's a funny time we're going through, but if there's any chance at all, we'll be back on the road playing a new album. That is for sure. Thank you, Martin. You have a great day, okay? Okay, thanks very much, Steve. See you, everybody. Okay, people, that's Martin Chambers from Pretenders. Uh, check them out on Twitter. Check out the Pretenders on uh, on uh, their website. Listen to their music. They're a great band. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 830 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter at coopertalk. Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.